Gaza. Jordan signed a peace deal with Israel in 1994, the second Arab country after Egypt to do so. Several Latin American countries have also severed ties with Israel over its bombing of Gaza. Bolivia, Chile, and Colombia recalled ambassadors. Israel's foreign ministry Wednesday accused those nations in separate statements of aligning themselves with Hamas terrorists. But Chile's President Gabriel Boric said on social media innocent civilians were the main victims of Israel's offensive. Most also denounced Hamas's attacks, but also Israel's. Colombia's president, Gustavo Petro, said on social media it's called genocide. They're doing it to remove the Palestinian people from Gaza and take it over. I'm Christina Onestead for Pacifica Radio. The time now is 1 p.m. Stay tuned for Leonard Lopez at Large coming up here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned. Dr. Brian H. Williams joins us now to discuss his new book, The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal. That subtitle reveals a lot about what his book is about. It's published by Broadleaf Books and brings trauma surgeon and professor Dr. Brian Williams to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Look forward to the discussion. Let's begin with your backstory. Haven't many members of your family served in the U.S. military, including yourself? Uh, That's absolutely correct, Leonard. I come from a long line of volunteer service members uh, dating back to the Civil War. So I'm a child of... Actually, um, yeah, your great-great-great-grandfather fought for the Union in the Civil War? Yep, exactly. And that relative fought in World War I, World War II... Korea. Uh, my father is a career Air Force non-commissioned officer. So he was the person I saw every day that sort of inspired me to pursue military service. I uh, just watching him put in his uniform every day and go to work to be part of something greater than himself. Uh, I felt special as well, being part of the family. And I followed his footsteps. I went to the Air Force Academy and became the first-generation college graduate and uh, the first officer in our family. So uh, uh being in the military, military is kind of is part of my blood. I just have this special uh, relationship with what, what it means to serve and patriotism and excellence. So that that's just part of the family business for us. But didn't each of your ancestors have to deal with discrimination when they returned from the military, like Jim Crow? And wasn't your grandfather excluded from receiving the benefits of the GI Bill? What reason was given for that? Well, I... I think that speaks to the resilience and determination and commitment of black Americans to helping America uh, achieve the ideals that's, that it professes about life, liberty, and, and justice. Um, you mentioned the GI Bill, and yes, my, my relatives were one of you know millions of, of black service members who were denied these benefits after serving with honor during World War II. What reason was given? Oh, this is because they were Because you're black? I mean, I can't imagine the federal government saying, you can't get this because you're black. So the GI Bill um, was uh, federal assistance for housing and Mm. education for World War II veterans. And, you know, it was instrumental in creating a middle class in this country. And I'm sure there are many descendants of those 
recipients who, you know, now own a house or have educational opportunities. Uh, but back then, when the GI Bill was administered by the federal government, the giving out the funds was relegated to the states. So the federal government gave the money to the states that were then given out for housing assistance and education. And still back then, states had a lot of policies that excluded black people from accessing a lot of the opportunities uh, that were given to white people. So you don't have to specifically say you can't have this because you're black, but the policies that were in place at the time still excluded uh, black service members from uh, accessing those funds. And what, what state are we talking about? Uh, so my, they were in South Carolina, but this was all over the this was all over the country. There's there, they said it's about a million uh, black World War II veterans that were denied these wow. benefits. So uh, I would have thought that would have made you reluctant to serve, but you went into the uh, Air Force Academy and you majored in aeronautical engineering. Was medicine an interest for you at that time? Absolutely not. I had medicine wasn't even on my radar as a profession back then. Uh, I liked airplanes. I liked math. I, I was good in science and math. Uh, so I majored in aeronautical engineering. That was my initial career when I was on active duty. Um, but I had a lot of friends that were in the medical profession, and I was drawn to it just by hearing them talk about the work they did. And eventually I made this transition to medicine uh, and I went to medical school. I was 27 or 28 years old. So it was, it was, I went to medical school when most people were graduating medical school. So I was what you call a non-traditional student, uh, but I don't regret it at all. It's been a great career. I've, it's been very rewarding to me. And uh, I felt that I contributed to the profession uh, uh, in return. So you grew up in the South, and you write about your N-word moment. What happened there? So my first time I was called uh, the N-word, I was eight years old, I recall. And, you know, it's that moment that I I think is defining (laughs) for many black children because it happens. And we remember it. And I recognize, you know, that word was meant for me. Mm-hmm. It was meant to dehumanize uh, me and, you know, since you put me in my place. And I just remember at the time, you know, of course, really embarrassed, but this tremendous anger and wanting to get vengeance on, on, on this kid. And, uh, but the reality is that I've been called that so many times since then, uh, even at every stage of my medical career. Really? I, I've been called. I've been called that. So, to, so that it's just that that word just never goes away. And I I spent some time in the book, you know, deconstructing its history and what it means. Uh, 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 but I don't let it hold me back. If that makes sense, it's like that's the reality of where we the, the country we live in. That racism is still uh, ever present. But I uh, am still going to do what I can to help create justice. And incidents like that are what still propelled me to ensure that I show empathy to everyone, that I recognize the humanity in all who cross my paths. Do not try to minimize uh, their existence or, or their purpose by not honoring who they are. And you call your anger about racial injustice, quote, my strength and my weakness, my comfort and my pain. 
Yeah, the, okay. that, that dichotomy is uh, something that exists within me. So that anger, it, it, you, I do derive strength from that, right? By channeling that anger into doing good deeds and when, trying to eliminate injustice. But it's also a weakness, as I describe in the book, because it can inhibit uh, connecting with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you, you can use it to make excuses <laughs> for things that are beyond your control. So that's why I describe it as my, my comfort and my pain and my strength and, and my weakness. Uh, but I've got to this point now where I'm doing everything I can to uh, use that simmering anger for good, like channel that energy for good purposes and how I can use my experience uh, to create a a world where all of us are able to thrive. When you were in the Air Force in the 1990s, weren't you pulled over by a police officer near the Florida Air Force Base? On what grounds? Uh, Yes, I was pulled over for speeding. That's what I was told. Um, but some of the background is that uh, I was pulled over for this. And the whole point is once I was pulled over, the fear I had that was visceral, that something bad was about to happen to me. Uh, I knew then that no matter what I did, uh, this encounter could go badly. And this was back in the 90s, Leonard. Uh, I think nowadays we are more aware of this possibility, but back then I, I, I knew that this could go badly. And I was asked to get out of the car. I'm in my uniform, put my hands on the hood. Just so, you know, so my friends are driving by to the base and see this spectacle. And uh, I, you know, I, I felt it was overboard what had happened. For you know, for a speeding ticket, uh, but you never know. You just never know, and that's just the mental gymnastics I describe in the book about wondering uh, what is the underlying reason for this sort of treatment as an Air Force officer driving into my base uh, to get pulled over and treated that way in, in public. Were you speeding? I was probably six miles over the limit, something like that. You know, it was thirty-six and a thirty, or something like that. You know, it was, it was one of those things. Meanwhile, you were doing interesting work. You were directing research and developmental test programs at that time. And that was that was really fun work to be working with um, some very interesting technology to do, uh, basically serve the mission of the Air Force. I had a chance to use my engineering degree, my, my flight experience, uh, working with a lot of people that are, are have since become astronauts in NASA. So that is the caliber of people I was working with during that time, uh, doing research and development for uh, uh, for Air, Air Force uh, programs. Were you I, I it. were you uh, mostly uh, considered a minority in this situation? How did your fellow Air Force officers respond to the Rodney King verdict? So, so Rodney King. Remember, for some people, I don't even know who that was. That he was pulled over and beaten by four LAPD officers, uh, and then a the year later, they were uh, acquitted uh, for any civil rights um, violations. But afterwards, uh, LA, there was uh, uh, very violent protests within LA, buildings being burned, people being injured, mm. and 
this was on the news and some of our friends turned to me and asked me, well, why, why would they, I put they in quotes, do that to their communities? Uh, you know, being the, the one black person in the group, I became a spokesperson for all of this. <laughs> you represented all black people. <laughs> exactly. So I just, I just said, look, this is, you know, I, Martin Luther King Jr. said, uh, a riot to the language of the unheard. And I you know, tried to use some version of that with my verbiage to describe what that meant. Um, but then one of my, one of my fellow officers said, well, you know what? Those are, you know, the N word that we discussed earlier and you're different than all that. Ah. Uh, so within that, there is a lot of, uh, to unpack about identity, racial identity, uh, military identity or friendships, you know, truly mean and, you know, what people think about you when you're not around. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I, I use that in the book to describe how this evolution of how I felt my place, uh, was in the world as a doctor, as a, you know, veteran, husband, father, uh, black surgeon, what that meant and how I could use my experience uh, to be a force of good. So all those experiences are kind of building up to, uh, you know, later transformation. How long were you in the Air Force? Four years at the Air Force Academy, uh, six years on active duty, and then uh, nine years in the inactive reserve afterwards. So a long uh, time. Was, yeah, but also I was born in an Air Force hospital. So I'm, my dad was in the Air Force my entire time growing up. So uh, I count that as well. <laughs> I count that time. Uh, and I look upon it fondly, the chance to move around the world, see different parts of the country. It was an adventure that really formulated my worldview about uh, service and excellence and also inclusivity to mix with kids that were also doing the same thing I was doing and uh, how that would inform how I viewed those around me. So it was a really good experience, really good experience. My guest on today's London Low Pit at Large is Dr. Brian H. Williams. His book, The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal from Broadleaf Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So what led you to give that up and become a doctor? I, I, don't, I don't feel like I gave anything up. I feel that I transitioned that, that experience I had into a different field of service. Uh, I served my country as an Air Force officer, and I took that same ethos of service into medicine to serve my community and serve my patients. And uh, the transition just, just happened because I had a lot of friends that were in the field. And just being around them all the time, uh, I was drawn into this field of medicine. And I thought, they all have really interesting jobs where they get to help people every day. And that's, I think, what I, I want to do. So I took the uh, admissions test, prepared for that. And then a year later, I was in medical school. Harvard Medical School. Were there many other black students there? Well, actually, I went to, for medical school, I went to the University of South Florida. Oh. Uh, okay. For my residency in surgery, I went to Harvard, Med- uh, well, Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is a Harvard Medical School teaching hospital. And then for 
fellowship for trauma went down to Grady Hospital in Atlanta, uh, which is with Emory University. So that 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 whole pathway, uh, uh, medical school, become a doctor, residency to specialize in surgery, then fellowship to specialize even more in trauma surgery and critical care. That was about what was that? That was thirteen years worth wow. uh, of training. But uh, you're you're right. There were there were a few uh, black students, black residents, and in fact, there are less black men entering medical school now than there were back in the seventies. So, it, you have there, any there, sense there, of why? Oh, there are there there are so many reasons why this is, and this is the the perennial challenge how do we increase uh, representation within the field of medicine but i think this is also true of many different specialized professions and uh you know i've done a lot of work with working on increasing representation but also those that are here those of us that are here how do we continue to ensure that we thrive in our environments whether it be academia or, or private practice there are many areas to intervene to increase representation, but also ensure people can thrive and continue to uh, progress along this path, uh, along the medical, medical hierarchy. You were told in medical school that race is a factor in diabetes, hypertension, heart attacks, and strokes. But don't you argue that race is not a, a risk factor? This was what I was taught a lot is that race is a risk factor for many of those diseases you discuss, mm -hmm. but the reality is racism is the risk factor. <laughs> and what, and what do I mean by that? So here's the discussion about structural racism and these systems and structures that exist around us that lead to disparate health outcomes. Um, it's kind of in the air around us. So, for example, um, due to uh, redlining and intentionally segregating uh, black people in certain neighborhoods that has endured over generations, these policies that were put in place generations ago. Also, these neighborhoods were co-located frequently near municipal dumps or uh, industrial factories. And what, what is the result of that? That you find these neighborhoods today have higher rates of certain types of cancers. You have children that have much higher rates of uh, respiratory diseases like, like asthma. And this is not because these are black children. Black uh, it's people. not a genetic thing you're saying. It's an environmental <laughs> thing. Exactly. And the structural racism, the racism in the policies that were put in place to segregate people in some majority black neighborhoods puts them at increased risk. So that's where the intervention needs to occur, not just to remove the structures, because that is not nearly enough. We also have to reinvest in communities to ensure everyone can thrive. And that is the work that's going to be transgenerational work. It's just, you know, if the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago, then we need to do work today to create healthier communities for tomorrow. Now, let's talk a bit about the Grady's in Atlanta. Were they called the Grady's because this hospital was in effect two hospitals? The, the Grady Hospital in Atlanta, where I did my mm. trauma fellowship, 
is, is, is one structure, one structure. But back when there was still a segregation, uh, the hospital itself had two separate sides, one side for white patients and one side for black patients. Uh, so four wings, two wings with a, a line down the hall dividing the two. Hmm. So if you talk to some of the elders that had been going to the hospital back then, they referred to it as the Grady's, plural, because it was essentially two hospitals all within one physical structure. And that is also uh, uh, an example of the two streams of healthcare that even exist today, right? We still continue to dichotomize uh, patients into those who can get care because they can afford it or they have insurance and those who cannot because they cannot afford or do not have health insurance. And the Grady's, it was clear, black and white, this is how it's going to work. Today, it's, it's a lot to do with economics and the choices we make to uh, continue to deny people access to uh to healthcare. So it sounds so we, degrading. We can, um yeah, yeah. Did you and have life to, threatening too. Life threatening and life altering. Did you have to swallow your pride when patients told you to take out the trash and also asked you to clear their meal trays and not to touch them? You were a doctor. Oh yeah. How did you respond? I, I told my I swallowed my anger told myself that I here am a as a healer and not to judge and it's my job to help this person get better. And these are the discussions that you know the few of us black trainees and students will have amongst ourselves when this happens because this happens all of the time. So even though I am a you know former Air Force officer and highly trained surgeon uh, Walking with a white coat, see a, see a black man, and you know, take out the trash, clean my tray, don't touch me. Uh, that, that's something we still need to, you know, get past in society. And also, as a you trauma, think it's surgeon, happening today. Oh, I have no doubt it's happening today. Absolutely, it's still happening today. No doubt this happens today. And as a trauma surgeon, you don't make an appointment to come see me, right? You don't get to choose me as your doctor. If you're injured, and I'm the one working that day. I am the doctor you're, you're going to get. Um, so you can, you can imagine that leads to some interesting, uh, confrontations every now and then. But for the most part, I would say overwhelmingly, Leonard, uh, that is a rarity. But when it does happen, I remember it. Well, you were sense. the hospital's only trauma surgeon. I was the hospital's only, the only black trauma surgeon. Oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Were you reluctant to address all that racism at the time? Absolutely. I just, I did not. No, I, I, felt, I just wanted to be the best trauma surgeon I could be. I wanted to go to work, take care of my patients, uh, teach re and do some teaching, teach residents and students. And I, I avoided those issues in the workplace because uh, it's generally not a pathway to career success. Uh, I didn't. I didn't want it to be an issue, uh, but and look at that. There's thinking about saying it now. Like there's no good reason not to, right? There's no good reason why any of us should have to uh, hand over our dignity for acceptance. We should be able to bring ourselves to the to the job uh, every day. Uh, but you know, talk, talk discussion about race and racism. 
Those are still some, some hot button issues, which means we need to talk about it more so we can move forward, right? Especially in healthcare, because we're trying to train the next generation of doctors who are culturally competent, who uh, feel accepted and, and can thrive and also can take care of our patients. And we know that having a diverse healthcare workforce leads to better outcomes for our patients. So there are so many, so many reasons that we can talk about why that is important and why now I feel a lot more free mm. to talk about, uh, talk about these issues and for, feel more compelled and obligated to bring these to the forefront. Were you able to compare notes with other black doctors at the time? Oh, yeah. Yes, we, we do this. <laughs> um, short answer is yes. The stories I'm telling you uh, are, are not unique to me. Uh, many of us have some variations of the things I describe in the book. Um, but we also, are the, the, this is part of our lived experience that I feel makes us that much better as doctors because that empathy is so important when you're caring for strangers. And we can bring that to the table with us uh, every single day. Let's talk about a really important moment in in this story. Just days after the police shootings of two black men in 2016, didn't you lead the team that tried to save the lives of seven of the police officers who'd been shot in Dallas on July 7, 2016? Yes. So, so people understand that these major trauma centers is always a trauma surgeon in the hospital 24-7, along with a team of you know, trauma professionals, nurses, emergency medicine doctors. And on this particular night you mentioned, uh, July 7, 2016, seven summers ago, there was a mass uh, shooting of police officers at a peaceful protest uh, where an white, armed veteran... White police officers. Well, yeah, black sniper who was targeting white police officers. Not all the police officers were white, but he was there targeting police white police officers. And we know this because when Dallas Police Department had him cornered and he was talking to the SWAT negotiator... That's what he told them. So that's kind of public record. Um, but yes, he was there targeting white police officers because of his anger over the deaths of Philando Castile the day before from a police shooting, Austin Sterling the day before that, and others that had happened earlier that year. Um, seven of the officers were brought to the hospital where I was uh, on call with the trauma team that night, and three of whom died hmm. from their wounds. And this is this is a night that I still think about every day. It's, it's one of those, it is a pivotal moment in my life, in my career. Well, and it, there's it changed a moment. your life, right? Because it thrust you into the national spotlight. Well, the press conference a few days later is what did that. Well, you uh, said you didn't want to take part in that conference. Exactly. I, I was asked to attend. I, I declined. I didn't want to be in front of cameras and microphones talking about this event. And it was, it was a trigger for me. My wife, who is central in this, in the story in this book said, you have to go. You have to get over yourself. This is not about you. This is bigger than you. So you have to be there so the country can see that there was a black doctor in charge that night trying to save these police officers because the narrative is, is much worse right now. So just go there to be seen. I had no plans to speak, but at some point I did speak because what was unsaid 
at the conference didn't sit well with me. I just felt we had to really talk about gun violence and racism and policing and policing because those were all wrapped up in this event and to ignore it was not a path toward healing. So I spoke off the cuff in the moment and that moment was when things changed. In what way? Uh, how did what happened affect your views on medicism, medicine and racism? And well, it was, it was a live press angry. conference. You know, it was a live press conference. The moment went viral. Afterwards, I be, yeah, I was asked to give a lot of interviews. So now I'm formulating my thoughts in real time. So all these things I'd kept buried for, for decades in order to get by were, were bursting through. And now I'm being asked questions. So how do I respond? Either I shrink back into my shell and ignore it, or I just step out and you start addressing this uh, head on. So I had to talk about the uh, healthcare inequality I was continuing to see in healthcare from the front lines uh, as a doctor working in safety net hospitals. The endless gun violence, particularly perpetrated uh, against young black men who reminded me of myself and family members who reminded me of my families, uh, policing. These are all together. And uh, I had to start talking about this because I had to be part of how we're going to be, how we're going to heal as a city after this tragedy, uh, as a nation. And for me to not speak about my experience and what it meant would make me part of the silence that was part of the problem. So that's when I began to step into this, uh, step into this discussion more intentionally. And that's continued over the years. And part of that is the book that I put out talking about the experience. Did the mayor of Dallas appoint you as chair of the city of Dallas Citizens Police Review Board as a result of this? Yes. Uh, a year after the shooting, I was appointed to be chair of the police review board, which is uh, a board that is a means for citizens to resolve complaints with the police department. Uh, but I viewed it as a means of also helping bridge the gap of distrust between two groups that historically had a lot of distrust. Um, so it, that was an important thing because it didn't matter that I was a surgeon. Like I didn't have to operate. All that mattered was leadership and commitment to serving the community of Dallas. And it was my first taste of how I can use my experience in the, in the hospital, outside of the hospital, to make change. Because I felt at that point, I knew that I had to do more. Uh, the victims from gun violence, the healthcare inequality, nothing I was doing in the hospital could stop what was happening upstream. I could treat people one-on-one, -on -one, very noble, very necessary, but to really change things at a systemic level had to happen outside the hospital. And the police review board was a chance for me to see how that could be done. Considering what's happened in Texas in the years since, do you think that could happen today? Uh, uh, another mass shooting happened today? No, no, no. I mean, the governor has uh, been rather conservative. Uh uh, race has been an issue. Is it still a problem, or was it easier then than now in some ways? 
I, I feel like the work to create justice and to uh, work for racial justice is uh, never ending. We will continue to do that work long after my days on earth are, are gone. And we're seeing today how even more important it is because there is this concerted effort to, to eliminate discussions mm-hmm. about diversity, equity, inclusion, the history of racism. Um, and, you know, putting a, you know, trying to bottle it up and put it away, box it up, it doesn't change anything. Uh, it still exists. And I, I actually have a lot more confidence in people to get the information <laughs> that they need. And the younger generation, they know. Like, they are so committed to creating justice that um, it's just, I don't know if it's going to be easier, but still necessary. And uh, I'm motivated myself to continue to be part of that movement. So I want to create a world that is better for my child and, you know, other people's children as well. Uh, so that's what we still need to do to create justice today. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Dr. Brian H. Williams. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Bodies Keep Coming. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Dr. Brian H. Williams, whose book, The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal, is published by Broadleaf Books. And uh, what about that title, the bodies keep coming. Uh, what do you mean by that exactly? The, the, the title came to me um, when I was thinking about the reality that as a trauma surgeon, I, I, I can't remember the last time I was on call where I didn't pronounce some or somebody dead on arrival. Wow. Due to, or somebody died due to a gun, due to a gunshot or seriously injured due to... Uh, was that every day? I don't know. I don't take call every day. Oh, you know, okay. A few times, and there's, there's multiple people that take call. <laughs> so we, we divide up the shifts. Um, but when I, was taking, when I was taking call, I just can't remember the last time I in years that somebody would, that did not take care of a gunshot victim. Um, and I was thinking to myself, like, the, the, the bodies, they just keep coming, right? It was, the bodies keep coming no matter what... I do in the, in the hospital and what can I do to stop this flow of bodies to the hospital? And, uh, the, clearly the intervention is somewhere outside of the hospital, somewhere upstream to, to do something about that. So that, that's where the, 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 the title came from. 
And someone recently told me that there was actually a, a parable about bodies flowing down downstream and how do you stop their flow. So uh, I guess I got lucky <laughs> with the title that there's also a parable out there that kind of talks about what I'm talking about here. But it's not just about the gun violence. It's just about uh, individuals that are coming to the hospital with late stage disease because they couldn't access their medications or see a doctor when the disease was treatable. Um, we, we, we can do better to provide quality health care to all. We can do better to reduce firearm-related injuries and deaths. And if we do not do that, clearly the bodies will keep coming. So you argue that until we transform policy and law with compassion and care, the bodies will keep coming? Exactly. So I... I Policy is is a central part of the solution, uh, not the only solution, but it, it, we need good policies because it is through the policy enacted generations ago that we are in the situation where we are now. Um, <clears throat> um, policy has a huge role in impacting things at the systemic level, at the population level, and I've seen what good policy can do. I, you mentioned I worked as a, a policy advisor in Congress for a while, and uh, I worked with people that are going to work every day trying to make the world a better place. And Congress can do big things that help a lot of people with the right leaders, uh, with the right leadership and leaders in place. So it's about having the education, uh, the committed, you know, work workforce to do things, and also policies uh, that can transform communities. And last, I think we also have to do, Leonard, is acknowledge that we don't always have the answers. The communities that are closest to the problem often have the best solutions. So there needs to be a collaborative effort um, to, to talk about what can be done to help uplift the communities that we and I, as a doctor, am trying to serve. Well, is it different in different states, the states where uh, people have guns and uh, states where it's illegal to have a gun unless you get a special license? So uh, I think gun violence is one good example uh, of of many we can talk about. Which you link with white supremacy, gun violence, and the bodies that you've tried to revive. Exactly. And I talked about a story where I actually took care and saved the life of uh, a white supremacist who was injured due to gun violence and trying to show that there is shared humanity amongst uh, all of us with me saving the life of someone who probably would rather see me uh, dead. And as far as gun policy, we have a lot of different gun policies across different states, uh, but we saw what can happen with the uh Bipartisan Safer Communities Act that was passed last year after the um, shooting at the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde. And that was the most significant gun safety bill passed in a generation and one that will save thousands of lives. And some of the policies in there were, you know, enhanced background checks, uh, gun trafficking. There was money for community violence intervention programs, which is interesting because that uh, that gives money to communities, those close to the problem to use to help intervene to prevent escalation of gun violence after uh, shootings. And there's, there's still more we can do 
going forward. Uh, but I think the, the bigger, the other part about this is that we don't just have one type of gun violence problem in this country. We have multiple types. There's intimate partner violence, suicide, mass shootings, uh, the urban gun violence. That was part of my career. Each have different root causes and require somewhat different solutions. So approaching it from that uh, angle is key to reducing injury and death. And I try to bring that out in the book. I use my experience as a trauma surgeon on the front lines. I talk about my experience as a veteran having trained on these weapons. I talk about having lost family members to gun violence myself. So it's personal, professional. And in the book, I try to put all that in there, not just to be heavy and uh, sad, but also to make it about hope and healing and what we can do going forward uh, to transform society. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Dr. Brian H. Williams. His book, The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma su- a Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal, is published by Broadleaf Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Can we talk about the Tuskegee syphilis study? Absolutely. Uh- I'm certain many people have heard of the Tuskegee experiment, uh, but may not know that this was actually uh, uh, run by the federal government. It was a racist activity run by the federal government. Exactly. So wanting to study the, the progress of latent syphilis denied penicillin, which was a treatment that denied that treatment to black men who were infected so they could study the progress of this disease over 40 years. And predictably, um, many did not do well. 600 black men were, were denied it from between 1932 and 1972. Yeah. It, uh, it, it, was, it was a way of studying the natural progression of latent syphilis? Exactly. On black men who infected their partners and uh, uh, their children as a result. Uh, and, there was a, and there was a treatment. So, uh, but there's more, like there's so many other incidents like J. Marion Sims, who was known as a father of obstetrics, who did barbaric operations on enslaved women without Mm -hmm. anesthesia, uh, somewhere, you know, we did a show on that. We did a show on that. We did a show on him. Yeah. Um, uh, what else? We did whole body radiation on, uh, um, black people and also poor people Mm -hmm. to see, to study the effects of a nuclear bomb going off. And uh, predictably, most of those folks died. Uh, forced sterilization of young black women who were sterilized, many without their consent. Um, so there are so many in- instances of where uh, black Americans were used in medical experimentation against their will, without their consent. Uh, and the, the dichotomy is that Yes, it has advanced medical science, but at what cost? We have robbed generations of people of their agency. We have dehumanized uh, uh, black people for these advances. And some of these things that, you know, I've learned and, and taught to my trainees as well. So I'm reconciling with that sort of contradiction. But I think the important part is we can acknowledge this. 
we can teach this because I think that will make us all better healers going forward. What is the Mulford Act? So the the Mulford Act was signed by then Governor of California, Ronald Reagan. 1969. And, yes. So, and it was also uh, supported by the National Rifle And it was in response to uh, the Black Panther Party, who were exercising their legal right to open carry a firearm uh and they're 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 basically protesting police brutality in their oakland neighborhood so So the nra was supporting gun control because of race exactly exactly and there 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 is a joke that said i can't remember who just said this if you want to get gun control uh black people getting a bunch of guns will lead to quick laws about gun control and that's kind of an example of there's this quick reversal right there. The Black Panthers were armed, uh, exercising legal rights safely, and the laws changed in California to make it more restrictive for this group to have have weapons. And even Ronald Reagan said, in no civilized society is there any reason for a civilian to have a gun in public, uh, I, I, something along those lines uh, at, at the time. But we've changed a lot in intervening. Like four, four decades, four or five decades. So it affected white gun owners as well, didn't it? But it was targeted specifically to disarm hmm. the Black Panthers by the way the law was written. But yes, it would have affected, impacted everyone. But the what propelled that to happen was seeing Black people, Black Panthers armed. Uh, and let's talk about the Black Panther Party. Uh, they did all, They were education, food programs, busing, like they did a lot in their neighborhoods and did what they could to protect their citizens from police brutality. And that was their, their, what they were doing at that time. But that display of open carrying weapons to protest police brutality in their neighborhood led to that, to the Mulford Act. How did you become a congressional health policy advisor and what was your role there? I was selected for a fellowship through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, where they take uh, mid to late career professionals that want to learn and work on health policy and uh, legislation at the federal level. So went to D.C. full time and essentially worked as a a staffer in a congressional office on health policy. so I had a chance to, you know, write legislation, uh, staff hearings, meet with constituents, learn about the entire the budgetary process. We also had three months of uh, onboarding to learn. You know, I mean, it was it was a very intensive onboarding that gave us a lot of insight into the federal legislative process, and then getting a chance to work on it, roll up my sleeves, and do the work as, as a staffer. From that, I learned about the process. I was in the process doing and doing the work, but also they benefited from having a doctor in their office. And it became key during the um, uh, working on the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act because I have a trauma surgeon in the office of the leading senator working on gun safety in this country at a time of passing this 
monumental gun safety legislation uh, was uh, was was huge to be a part of that process. So um, I, I brought a lot back from that process, and I feel I, I left them with something as well. And what I learned from there is that we definitely need more doctors, healthcare professionals involved at the federal level uh, working on policy because they are grateful to have our frontline experience and input on what they do. Do you think you were appointed because of the celebrity you received in 2016 uh, as a result of what we discussed earlier, the police shootings uh, of two black men and uh, you're leading the team to save the lives of seven of the police officers who were shot in Dallas? No, no, I don't think that was. Um, You're not a celebrity. At all. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I, I, I suspect that was that probably gave them some pause. I don't know for I don't know for sure, but this this fellowship is a is a nonpartisan fellowship. Mm-hmm. So we have people that are from both sides of the political spectrum. We work in both sides, uh, both houses of Congress. Um, so that sort of platform, I guess. Might have given them some pause. I, I don't like said I don't know. I was not involved in the selection process. But what I did was, I was very honest about why I wanted to be involved in uh, federal legislation. I wanted to be able to work on policy that would impact structural racism, and I felt federal policy was a way that um, that could be addressed uh, to work on reducing firearm-related injuries and deaths. I felt federal policy was where that could happen. So I didn't try to be something I wasn't, and I could not hide whatever, I would say, quotes, celebrity may have come out of that event. And I, I will say this, uh, I, it's difficult being associated with a tragedy like that. No matter where I go, I'm still kind of associated with mm-hmm. that event. Um, but I just I felt that they were looking for people that can give different perspectives on how we can address healthcare. You know, a couple of doctors, a nurse, there's an attorney in the group. We all had different backgrounds and putting us all together. I think together we were a force. Individually, we could do so much, but together we had a great, unique group that um, bonded very quickly. And uh, there's some, there's some, these are some of my best friends now. I call them. I feel I can call them any time for advice on a lot of different issues. Uh, is where we live a factor in the quality of medical care we receive? Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, and just and also this this access, particularly access to care. And I'll we can look at Texas, my state, for example. Yeah, you're in Dallas the, still. Yeah, I'm in Dallas. So if in Dallas, there's a lot of healthcare options, right? You know, universities, you know, private, public, community hospitals. There is just a plethora of options. But go out to the rural areas, and the infrastructure is you know slowly disintegrating, where uh, many people don't have ready access to just regular preventative care. Well, so we, we're pretty much out of time, but I just did want to ask you if, if you could answer me in a minute or so. Are there specific policies that you would like to see enacted? Uh, I, first of all, in my state of Texas, Medicaid expansion, I think that would go a long way to improving health outcomes, and I think we'd all benefit from that. Not just from health, but also from a, it's a, I think it's a good business decision, uh, as well. And for gun violence, you know, universal background checks, raise the age to buy weapons. And I think we should reinstate the assault weapons ban as well. That will save some lives. So those are two policies 
Well, I want to thank you two, very much. Two buckets, yeah. I want to thank you yeah. very much for being on our show. I've been speaking with Dr. Brian H. Williams. His book, The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal, is published by Broadleaf Books. You probably also have seen some of seen him uh, on CNN. His op-eds have been published in Newsweek, Chicago Tribune, Dallas Morning News, MedPage Today, and... He's been a guest on our show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Leonard. It was a pleasure talking to you today. I appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this station coming to you because we're going through a rough patch, as are many public radio stations, but us in particular because we depend 100% on listener support. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212 212- 209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number 2 WBAI.org We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now will receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, The Bodies Keep Coming, by Dr. Brian H. Williams. So why not make that call now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $5, $10, $15, $20 a month for as long as you wish. It allows us to plan for the future. And we're offering a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, we hope you'll call now because we rely 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants. It allows us to be completely free speech radio. And you're, you're, uh, we're the only station in the New York area that is completely independent. Uh, so make a tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, please. And thank you if you do. I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Kara McGugan will discuss her book, Blood Farm, The Explosive Big Pharma Scandal That Altered the AIDS Crisis. We'll see you then.